A cordial and official welcome to Torah Studies. This is our weekly look at the soul of the Torah portion. Um, we have, as I mentioned a moment ago, we have an absolutely fabulous class in store for you tonight. This is going to mix Torah study, Talmud study, analysis, philosophy, law, everything and anything um, that you can imagine. Well, I mean, not everything, but many things that you can imagine will be found in tonight's class. So without further ado, we're going to jump in. First, I want to ask you a question. And the question is going to be um, a question about perspective. And I'm going to give you two scenarios, kind of attitudes in life. And I want to ask you to weigh in and tell me, you know, you know, raise your hand for one or for the other. Tell me which is kind of your um, attitude in life. Are you the type of person, two options, are you the type of person that lives for the moment and whatever comes later comes later, you'll worry about it then? I was like, it'll be good, it'll work out, whatever, I don't need to worry about it now, it's, uh, it's not now, it's then, and then will be then, and I don't need to worry about it. Or, that's one option. In other words, you live in the moment, come what may, or is your perspective perhaps more of a, uh, I'm not going to make a move now, right? I won't do this or, or you know, take this approach if, you know, there's a possibility that something else is going to happen or I'm going to essentially is or is your approach in life in general more of a let's look at let's look at what this could lead to or let's look at what this could cause. Right. Let's look at the future. Are you more living in the moment or are you more thinking about preparing for the future? All right. The, living in the moment, friends, raise your hand. Living in the moment. Living in the moment. All right, we got some living in the moments. All right, what about planning for the future? Planning, future, future planning. All right, good. All right, so we have some more. So it seems like the majority of, of you, of us, are future planners as opposed to living in the moment. Well, tonight, oh, not that simple, correct, right? It's not, it's not that simple, and tonight... We're going to make it even more not simple <laughs> because we're going to look at um, one, two, three, four, five, maybe five or six different cases, different questions that pertain to the same nukuda, the same point, which is now or later, today or tomorrow, or in other terms, process or outcome, right? Is it about the process, what I'm doing now, or is it about the outcome that will happen? So we're gonna do a, a, some, some really marvelous things in this class. First is we're gonna set up, I'm gonna share with you a classic, some classic questions in Jewish law that hinge on this question, right? Do we look at the now or do we look at the later? And these are going to be really tough questions. It's not like um, at a party, do you check your watch or you live in the moment? It's, that's, it's, not, it's not going to be so simple, right? It's not as simple as that. These are going to be complicated halakha questions that I'm going to ask you, l'chaim, l'chaim, that I'm going to ask you to weigh, right, that I'm going to ask you to weigh in on, okay? So 
And then after that, I'm going to present you. Oh, looks like Reva has arrived. Hi, Reva. Say hi. And then, and then afterwards, I'm going to. I need this for soon. And then afterwards, I'm going to share with you a bunch of Talmudic debates that hinge on the same central point. But instead of telling you what we're going to do, let's just start doing it. All right. So I have a question for you. Familiar raise of hand. Are you familiar with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? Yes. Yes. It's a fast day. Good. Yeah. Good. Reva's on board. All right. Are you familiar with what happened seven days prior to Yom Kippur? Yeah, the third day. Hey, Karen, good to see you. The third day. Hey, Mom and Zaidi, good to see you guys. The third day of Tishrei. Yes? So Rosh Hashanah is day one and two of Tishrei. What is day three of Tishrei? Good. Tzom Gedalia. Excellent. Tzom Gedalia. What is Tzom Gedalia? It's a fast day. In other words, one week before Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is another fast day. It's not as well known. It's of rabbinic origin. It's uh, about a Jewish governor named Gedalia who lived at the times after the first temple destruction and he was murdered and it was a great calamity and um, it was a problem for the Jewish people. And because of that, the, ra the rabbis instituted a fast. So, as David's writing in the chat, it's a, it's a practice fast. It's quick, exactly. It's very fast. It's not as long as Yom Kippur. It's not a 25-hour fast. It is rather only a, what we would call a morning till evening fast. So it's easier. <laughs> um, here's the point. Here's the point. The question came up in halacha. The question comes up in halacha. What if a person feels that they're not so strong? A person's feeling not so well, feeling a little bit ill, a little bit, a little bit not well. And they think to themselves like this. It's the third day of Tishrei, and it's, a, and, and it's a fast day, right? It's the third day of Tishrei, and it's a fast day. So the question is, do I fast on Tzom Gedalia, knowing that if I fast today, it could knock me out, make me even more sick, and by the time Yom Kippur rolls around, which is a biblical fast, I won't have the energy to fast. Are you with me? Or... Do I skip this fast to save my energy for the biblical fast? I'm going to say it one more time. Today is the third of Tishrei. Today is a rabbinic 12-hour fast. A person has a question. Not feeling so well. So should I fast today in observance of the fast day, Tzom Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia, which might cause me to feel sick? to set me back, and then by next week, Yom Kippur, I'll be too weak to fast, and I'll miss a biblical fast, and I will be totally justified then, because I won't feel well enough to fast. If it's dangerous, you don't have to fast. But I'm setting it up, possibly by fasting now, or do I skip this fast, save up my energy, and... Do the marathon Yom Kippur fast. All right, you ready? Open up your mics. What do you think? Do you fast now or you fast later? Understand this. The question is, to what extent do you plan and think about the future? Right? Do you worry about what's going to happen next week? Or do you say, it's a fast day. I can fast. 
Let me fast and, and, and hopefully I'll be okay. Open up. I want you to share with me. Donna, go ahead. Fast today because, you know, the fast, the, the spirituality of the fast might give you more energy. So, so Donna says, <laughs> Donna says, who said it's going to set you back, knock you out? It could give you a jolt. David writes in the chat, fast both. You have a whole week to recover. What's the big deal? Again, I, I, I totally agree. But let's say that you're concerned. You're, you're literally concerned that if you fast now, by next week, you might not recover. So the question is, do you say, look, this is the moment in front of me. This is my opportunity. Karen, fast today. I might die tomorrow. Right. So that's one approach. One approach is live in the moment. Live in the moment. Today's a fast day. Next week is next week. It's seven days away. Don't worry about next week yet. Fast now. The other approach is... Do you now wonder why Chazanim don't like Rabbanim? <laughs> Making things complicated, right? There you go. Right, but, but it's, a, it's a question that comes up in Halacha. And the question is, should you seize the day, carpe diem, seize the moment and fast now, Tzom Gedalia, or... Do you think, hold on, let me plan, let me think about next week, maybe I shouldn't, let me skip this one for the extra strength. Let me share with you how this is um, cited in the, the, the halachic text. Take a look, I'm going to share my screen with you. Hold on, one second. Before I do that, let me just double check. Let me double check that I have the right page. Okay, it's important that we're starting off with the um, the right page over here. Um, here we go. Okay. By the way, I forgot to mention, all of this will come back to this week's Torah portion. Don't worry, you have nothing to worry about. We're going to get back to this week's Torah portion and it's going to be marvelous. But we're setting this up to understand this, this, uh, this dual perspective or these two possibilities of perspectives in life in general. Okay, here we go. This is text number one. Uh, yeah, here we go. Um, you know what? Donna, please read text number one if one is certain. Hold on. You got to unmute. If one is certain that should he fast on Som Gedalia, it would cause him harm on Yom Kippur, possibly driving him into a life and death situation, and forcing him to eat on Yom Kippur, whereas he, whereas he is certain that he would be able to fast on Som Gedalia with no harm done, what should he do? This question was posed to the rabbi of Mezerich in a re responsum printed in the book Oil Moshe. The parameters of the question were like this. If he does not concern himself with the consequences of fasting today, when Yom Kippur arrives, perhaps he can be considered it's an, it's an anos. Anos is Hebrew for someone who is, um, he's exempt because it's an accident. He's, it's, it's an accident. An anos, one who is forced into non-compliance, who is automatically not obligated nor culpable. Or perhaps it's better to forego the current lighter fast so to, so to be able to fast on Yom Kippur. So the question, yeah, and that's the question that I posed to you, but here it is inside the text, in a halachic text. The question is simple. If he fasts today, he might get so sick by next week that by next week he won't be able to fast, and then it's not a violation of Yom Kippur because he will be considered an anus, anus rachmanapacha, which means um, an anus, someone who is... 
Anus means it's beyond your control. If it's beyond your control, then you're, it's not, you're, not held, it's not, you're not culpable. It's not held against you if you can't do it. So, but the question is, is it really considered that you can't do it if you set it up now? Does that make sense what I'm saying? In other words, if, it's, if, if that, you know, I remember seeing a sign in an office, your, um, your negligence or something does not constitute my emergency. Something along those lines, right? I've seen, I saw that in an office one time, right? So because you planned poorly by fasting on Som Gedalia, so now Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur comes around, oh, I can't, it's an accident, it's beyond my control. Is it really beyond your control? Why'd you fast last week? So that's one option to say don't fast. The other option is, no, you should fast because it's, it's the fast in front of you. Again, we're, I'm not going to solve this now. We're not going to answer the question. My point is to understand how the, the question of, you know, are you more of a live-in-the-moment type of person or a planner type of person, it actually has halakhic ramifications. Do you live in the moment and fast on Som Gedalia, on this fast right here, or do you plan for Yom Kippur, don't fast on Som Gedalia so that you have the energy? Now, this question comes up in a different context. This is something that I've shared before in other classes. It's a really powerful scenario. Let me stop sharing for a moment so I can see all of you. Um, there was once a man, this is a true story. There was a man who was in prison. You know how it worked back then, right? So, you know, the Jews uh, didn't own land, so they rented land from the landowner. And if they couldn't make payments, they were thrown into debtors' prisons, debtor, you know, dungeons, and, and basically to hold until somebody ransomed the fellow out of jail or the family out of jail. It was very difficult times. There were debtor prisons everywhere. Anyway, one, one time, this fellow's in prison, and he's missing all of his Jewish opportunities. Uh, holidays come and go, and uh, he can't celebrate Passover. He can't celebrate uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, not, not, nothing. Hanukkah, Purim. He, he keeps on requesting from his jailer a, I think they call it a furlough. Yeah, is that the right word, furlough? Where you get a day off? Yeah, a get-out-of-jail card for one day type thing. All right, so he requests it. And lo and behold, it's granted. His request is granted. So the fellow asks the, 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 the great rabbi at the time, known as the Radbaz, Rabbi David Ibn Zimra, he asks him the question, I have a get-out-of-jail card for one day. Which day should I take it? What day should I do? Take a look at the text inside. Um, let's ask Ray. Ray, please go ahead. Please unmute and read text number two. Uh, am I unmuted? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. You're good. Okay. A certain vein was in jail and unable to pray with the minion and perform other mitzvot. He pleaded with the minister or governor to let him free, but he was only granted a one-day pass for any day of his choice. Which day out of all the days of the year should Reuven choose to go to shul? So, you see the question? Here's a Jew. He's sitting in jail. All he wants to do is get out of jail. The jailer says... All right, one day you can go. So now he has a question. Which day? And essentially, to explain the question and how it fits into our conversation tonight, essentially the question comes down to two, it comes down to two options, right? What are the two options? 
Option number one. Option number one is take the first day possible, right? Today, go out, live in the moment, seize the day, carpe diem, baby. Or think about, plan, strategize. What would be the best day, the holiest day, the most spiritual day? Should I wait for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover, Hanukkah with the family? Like, what's the best day? So again, the question comes down to the, the same, the same nakuda, the same point, the same duality. Do I live in the moment and take the first day possible? Tomorrow morning, I'm gone, go to shul? Because I think as uh, Karen wrote before, fast now because who knows if tomorrow will even be around, so take that first day because who knows? Or do we plan? Maybe we plan and we strategize. You know what? In three months... I'll, 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 uh, I'll cash that, that get-out-of-jail card in. Again, I'm not going to give you the answer. These questions, by the way, were answered by, by, the, by the sages, but the, the answers right now are not relevant. It's more about understanding the dueling perspectives. With this in mind, with this in mind we're going to look at a series of Talmudic disputes. And what we're going to do is um, explore unrelated Talmudic debates, unrelated, different topics, completely, completely different topics. And we're going to show how at the core of all of these Talmudic debates is the same question, now or later, today or tomorrow, short term or long term, process or outcome. We're going, to, we're going to see how these Talmudic debates follow the same pattern. How one rabbi, is look, one opinion looks at it today and the other one looks at it as tomorrow. Is what I'm saying as the framework, it, does it make sense what I'm saying? Yes? You should know, by the way, that this is called in Talmudic scholarship, this is called studying the opinions l'shita se. L'shita se means, or l'shita sayhu. It means that you study, you don't just study the Talmud, the immediate Talmudic debate, but you go deeper and deeper and say, yeah, these two, these two rabbis are, are debating this area of law, but why? What's at the core of their opinion? And when you get to the core, you can see how sometimes those same personalities disagree about a completely, seemingly, completely different area of law, but at the core, it's all related. Does that make sense what I just said? So Lashita Saya would mean like this. That you have Hillel and Shammai, two of the greatest sages of all time that were combatants in, in, Hala, in Jewish law. Hillel, Shammai, Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai, the academies of, 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 of each of them. And you can go through dozens of machloket, do, dozens of disputes, and say they all come down to one difference of perspective. And that one difference of perspective triggers Everything else. We're going to do that tonight, now with Hill and Shammai, with two other rabbis. We're going to do this with Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda, two of the great sages of the Mishnah, cited in the Mishnah and the Talmud, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda. So remember those names, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda. Let's jump in. And now we connect it with a topic from this week's Torah portion. Torah portion this week is called Kitisa, and in this Torah portion, although it's dominated 
by the tail, the negative tail of, well, the tail of the golden calf. I don't mean T-A-I-L, but T-A-L-E. You see what I did there, yeah? So although it's dominated by the story of the golden calf, nonetheless, nonetheless, there are some other points of conversation, including for those of you that join me every day for DPP, that stands for Daily Power Parsha, at 12, you're familiar with this, including the obligation, the commandment to create the anointing oil. The oil of anointing. What does that mean? Ointment? No, I said anointing. Anointing oil. What was the anointing oil? It was special oil, fragrant herbal oil. We'll see soon the formula. That was created to inaugurate initiate the high priest, various temple items, the Jewish kings eventually in Jewish history, this, the oil was used for the, to anoint the Jew, the, the, when, when a Jewish king became uh, king, they were anointed with this oil. The oil was used for special individuals on special occasions, and there was a formula. Let's pull up the secret sauce. Yeah, let's pull up the secret recipe, not so secret, it's right there in the Torah. Let's pull it up right now for all of us to see. All right, you ready? Let's get to the kitchen. Let's get the pan. Let's, uh, sorry, let's, let's read this. Um, uh, ba -ba -ba. Steve, Steve, please unmute. And if you will, please read text 3A. Here is, here is the formula for the oil. God spoke to Moses saying, and you take for yourselves spices of the finest sort, of pure myrrh, 500 shekel weights, of fragrant cinnamon, half of it, 250 shekel weights, of fragrant cane, 250 shekel weights, and of cassia, 500 shekel weights, according to the holy shekel, and one hen of olive oil. You should make this into an oil of holy ointment, a perfect, uh, a perfumed compound according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be an oil of holy anointment. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. So what we have here is the formula for the anointing oil, right? It should be a whole, an oil of holy anointment. This is called the anointing oil. And what's in, what's in it? You have myrrh, cinnamon, cane, fragrant cane, cassia. I don't know, cassia, cassia. I don't know how to pronounce it. And... You got some olive oil. Sounds good. Sounds good. And, and you got to make it according to the art of a perfumer. Any perfumers out there? So then you know how to do this. Otherwise, we got to turn to the commentaries. Because in the Talmud, there's a debate about how exactly this was made. You see, the art of a perfumer, not so fast. The rabbis discuss this. This is brought down in Rashi. All right, let's take a look at Rashi's interpretation on this. Um, let's ask, oh, Steve, please continue. This is text 3B, the sages in Israel. The sages in Israel are different opinions as to the purpose of the oil. Rabbi Meyer said the roots were boiled in it. Rabbi Yehuda said to him, surely the quantity of oil was not sufficient even to smear the roots with it. Rather, the roots were steeped in water so that they should not thereafter absorb the oil. The oil was then poured upon them, and they were uh, left thus until the air oil absorbed the scent. 
They then skim the oil off the roots. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're all thinking. What are we talking about here? What is going on here, right? What, what, what is this formula? So let me break it down. Well, I'm gonna pre let's present both opinions. Opinion number one is Rabbi Mayer. Rabbi Mayer said, here's what you do. You take a pot or a bowl or whatever it is, and you put the roots, you put all those herbs or whatever it is in there, and then you put the oil and you boil it all together. And that's it. Rabbi Yehuda says to Rabbi Meir, are you kidding me? Do you see how many herbs and roots and whatever it is, all of those items, that, the, the solid items, and the oil was only a little bit relative to all the other items. So he says, as, look at his uh, um, opposition or his challenge in the middle paragraph. Surely the quantity of oil was not sufficient even to smear the roots with it. In other words, you don't have enough to cook it all together. What, 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 what's going on? He says, no. Rabbi Huda says, I have a different opinion. What's, what do you do? You first, you soak the roots in water so they absorb the water. They become waterlogged. And then you pour oil on top so the oil does not become, it's only a little bit of oil, the oil does not become absorbed inside the roots because the roots already have water. Are you with me so far? Yes? And then you scrape off or you skim the oil, but, but you leave it. You still leave the oil on top of the roots. You leave it there for a while, and then you skim. I don't know how exactly you skim, but you skim the oil off the roots, and now you have fragrant, you now have a fragrant root situation. Fra uh, fragrant, fragrant oil. So it's an interesting dispute. Different processes. One, one says that you boil everything together. The other rabbi says, no, you, 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 you put water in it and then you put oil on it and then you skim off the oil. The question really is, what's at the core of this debate? What's at the core of the debate? And how would Rabbi Meir, for that matter, answer Rabbi Yehuda's question, which is, you don't have enough oil? So here's how Rabbi Meir would answer the question. He says, yes, there's not a lot of oil, but you boil everything together until it turns into a mush until it all becomes liquefied. And when it becomes liquefied, so there's some oil, and there's a lot of roots, and it becomes mushed together. It becomes a, a blend. That's what he says. And the other rabbi says, but then you don't have oil. It's not anointing oil. It's primarily the other stuff. We need anointing oil that's, that looks like oil. So you need to not liquefy the roots, the herbs, the spices, whatever the other things are, you can't liquefy them. The goal is to get them waterlogged so that they don't, they don't, they're not all cooked together. Then you pour the oil on top, you let it sit there for a little while to pick up some of the fragrance, and then I guess you shake it off or whatever it is, and you have whatever oil is left, the little oil that's left is fragrant, is, 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 is fragrant but it, it's anointing oil. It's not uh, herb and, and root mush. Are you with me in the distinction between the two opinions? Yes? Don't ask me to say that again, because that, that took a lot of effort to, to try to explain. But those are the two opinions. Rabbi Meir says, you make a mush. Think about a soup. Yeah? I mean, th uh, this is probably a terrible example, but let me go for it. You know, some people, you make a soup, you leave the vegetables chunked, you have a broth with vegetables. Or you could take the hand immersion blender. You know what I'm talking about? The thing, yeah? And you put it in, and it mushes everything up. And now everything is the mush. So you don't have broth and vegetables. You have a mush. 
kind of, sort of, is Rabbi Meir and, Rab, and, Rabbi, um, and Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Meir says, you mush everything up, not with a blender, but you cook everything until it all becomes one, one mixture. A little oil and all the other stuff, it's all liquefied. And the other rabbi says, but then you don't have anointing oil. Where's your oil? You have uh, butternut soup. Where's, where's your oil? Or myrrh, myrrh liquid, liquid myrrh, like when it's cold outside, you know, myrrh. All right. Yeah, so that's, so that's what you have. Um, so he says, no, you, you, you soak it, you put oil in there, and then eventually you pull out the other stuff and you're left with the oil with a little bit of fragrance, and that's it. Now it's oil, so you pull out, you strain the vegetables, you have a broth, again, in my soup example. That's the best I can explain it. That's the core dispute. The question is, what is the rationale behind the dispute? Like, why is one rabbi, like, did they have soup preferences that then, you know, bled over into their understanding of the, of the anointing oil? Like, why did one rabbi say, no, it's definitely what you want to do is liquefy, you know, cook all that stuff until it's liquefied. They were like, no, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. You got to just have the oil and skim it. And that's what's it's so random. What's at the core of the debate? Well, you guessed it. It's the same thing we said before. Now or later. You see, one rabbi's opinion is that the oil of anointing needs to be, you know what, let's read it inside. Let's read it inside in the Rebbe's words. Take a look at text number four. But it comes down to this question of now versus later. I'm going to read this text. Um, text four. Right over here. Rabbi Meir's opinion is this. Again, Rabbi Meir is the opinion that says you just cook everything together. Uh, you, you, you liquefy it all together. Rabbi Meir's opinion is this. When the Jews needed to make the oil, they were primarily concerned, primarily concerned that the oil be perfect in the present. And as such, they boiled the herbs in the oil. They weren't bothered that it would be slightly, that it would slightly diminish future results as the oil wouldn't later be so discernible from the herbs. In other words, the fact that later on in the process, they would all, it would all liquid, the herbs would liquefy and become one with the oil, and you wouldn't be able to see the oil as much as you would see just the herbs liquefied. That's what happens later, but in the moment. You have oil and you have herbs and you're putting it together. So you look at the, at the initial moment and that's what the oil, the oil of anointing, that's the way it's done. By contrast, second paragraph, Rabbi Yehuda holds that no matter, we must be concerned about the future consequences. Not now, but later. And so they couldn't boil the herbs in the oil because it would diminish the perfection later on. In other words, at the, at the end result would not look like oil. It would look like mushed myrrh. As such, Rabbi Yehuda states that they first soaked it in the water. Even though it would possibly detract from the perfection at the moment, it would lend to later perfection. Rabbi Yehuda says, you first, so the second opinion, you first soak all of these herbs in water. Yeah? Even though that's going to somehow repel the oil, and the oil is not going to really be so super blended with the spices, so you sat, you compromise on the now to have a better later. I'm going to explain this one more time. You can't have both in this situation. Either you're perfecting the now process or the later outcome. You're either focused on now or later. Process or outcome. Rabbi Meir, the first opinion says, 
you got to focus on, on, on right now. The Torah says you put the oil with the spices, with, with the herbs or the herbs with the oil. That's what you do. No one ever said to put water. What's, what's, where does water come in? No one ever talked about water. Oh, water is going to get you a better result? Forget the results. The Torah says, here's what you put with the oil. You put them together. You cook them. That's it. You're done. That's what Rabbi, that's what Rabbi Meir says. I, the end result is going to be, it's not going to look like oil. Come what may, we're following the process. We're doing what we need to do right now. Rabbi Yehuda says, no. What kind of business is this? Follow the process. You got to look at the outcome. The outcome needs to be anointing oil. It should look like oil. It shouldn't look like the herbs are inside of it. It should look like primarily oil with a little bit of fragrance and, and other stuff picked up from, from, from all of the other things. So you have to put in water and you have to do all these things, even though the Torah never said put in water. And you're compromising, in a sense, on some level, on the literal understanding of what the Torah's instructions are, but you compromise on that now in order to get a desired end result. Again, this is how the Rebbe explains this dispute between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda about exactly how the perfumed or um, yeah, perfumed anointing oil was made. Let me check in to just see if what I said makes sense or if you have any questions on what I just said. Does what I say make sense? Yes? Ish? Sort of? No? David, sort of? Only? Sort of? Okay. I'm going to try. Yeah. Doesn't it depend on when you need the oil? If you need it now, you do it the first way. And if you need it later, you do it the second way. The process doesn't take any longer or shorter. So both, both, but the pro both processes, let's say, would take the same one hour. Let's just say. So it's not like you're going to get it faster. You need it now. So you're going to go um, route one or route two. There's no, there's no difference in time. It's going to take the same amount of time. The question is, how do you prepare it? So Rabbi Meir said, the Torah says, you put oil, you put the herbs together, and, and the art of a perfumer, and that's what we're going to do. And, and the end result is not going to look like oil, of an, it's not going to look like oil, but we're following, we're, fo we're, we're putting oil with the herbs, and, and we're, we're doing the process. The outcome, whatever happens, happens. But we're doing the process. Rabbi Yehuda, Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Yehuda in the Mishnah, um, I don't know. I don't know because Rebbe in the Mishnah, I believe, is Rabbi Yehuda Anasi. I believe it's Rebbe in the Mishnah. I don't know if it's Rabbi Yehuda. Might be a different Rabbi Yehuda. Okay. Um, but anyway, but, but, the, but the, oh, so no, 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 it's not just, no, the question is not do you need it now or do you need it later. I see a few people are asking this question. It's not whether you need it today or you need it next week. It's not what you need, it's about anointing. It's right, it's not when you need it, right? It's about the it's about how you make it. So one guy, one rabbi says, you make it, you follow the script. You follow the process. The Torah says oil and the herbs, and that's it. I the outcome an hour later is gonna look like herbal mush. That's and I don't see the oil because it's all it's too combined. It is what it is. I followed the I followed the, the process. The other rabbi says no. You modify the process to get the desired outcome, right? Compromise on the process to get the desired outcome. That's the key. In other words, it's like we asked before about Yom Kippur, right? It's like what we asked before, what we asked before about Yom Kippur. Do you follow the process now? First Som Gedalia, then Yom Kippur, one fast and then a second fast, or 
do you compromise on the first fast in order to have a desired outcome of being for sure healthy for the second fast? It's the same question. So one rabbi says, you don't compromise on, on now. You do the oil, you do the, you do the herbs, and you know what? There's too little, the, Torah, the, the Torah's recipe, the oil is too little. It's not enough oil that when you're done with that, that you have a preponderance of oil. It's just not that one hint of oil is much less than all of those herbs. A massive amount, 500 shekel of weight of, of these herbs is a massive amount of herbs. There's no way that hint of oil is going to be enough that the end result is going to look like oil. It's not going to look like oil. But Rabbi Meir says, you follow the process. Rabbi Yehuda says, no. You compromise the process. You're doing oil, you're soaking the herbs, and, and, which is going to repel the oil from mixing in, by the way. It's going to push, it's going to keep the oil from being absorbed. Why? So that your end result looks more like oil than like mush. So he says, you don't do process, you do outcome. You compromise on the process to get the outcome. All right, listen. It's, 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 it's an explanation, it's a nuance, but we have much more to get to. So let's keep on going with the same two disputants, the same two rabbis, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda, and we'll see other areas of dispute and how they come down to the same nekuda, the same, the same duality of perception. In other words, one rabbi looked at life more in the now. And the other rabbi looked at life more in the what's to come, more in the future. One was a nowist and one was a futurist, right? I don't know if a nowist is a word, but nonetheless, we just created that. Let's look at the next area of conflict, of dispute. This, this relates to individuals, individuals who are entrusted with other people's properties. This is a massive topic in Jewish law. It's a massive topic in the Talmud. We do not at all have enough time to really do justice to this large conversation. The simple question is, if you are holding on to something that belongs to someone else, what is your level of responsibility? Right? Let's say somebody gives you, oh, I don't know, a Torah scroll. Whoops. A Torah scroll. There you go. Um, this is a kid's Torah scroll that is very um, uh, conveniently placed right on this table. I don't know why. I guess one of the kids was pulling out their little um, mini Torah scroll. Um, not a kosher Torah scroll, just a, you know, a kid's uh, replica type thing. So imagine someone gives you something to watch, to hold on to while they're away. Let's say it's a Torah scroll, or let's say it's, uh, it's their pet, their pet dog, or let's say their car, hey, you know, watch my car while I'm gone, whatever it is. And an accident happens. Are you on the hook? Are you not on the hook? Classic question. What is your level of liability? It's not your item, but you were watching it for someone else. The Talmud explains, based on biblical verses, that it depends on the relationship. If you were asked to watch it for free, and an accident happened... You're not on the hook. I mean, I was doing you a favor and now you're going to come after me. Are you kidding me? That's a chutzpah, right? I didn't tell you to go on vacation and leave your animal. You go on vacation, leave your animal. I have to go feed and watch it. And then an accident happens. Not my fault. And you're going to come after me and sue me. 
That's chutzpah. So if it's, we call this a shomer chinam, an unpaid guardian, not on the hook for accident. Oh, by the way, negligence? Yeah, you are on the hook for negligence, but an, we're talking about an accident, right? An accident, it's not like you left the animal, you know, um, you left the door open. That's negligence. But you did your best, but an accident happened. If you weren't paid, you have no liability. But if you were paid, if, if literally you were paid to do that job, even though it's an accident, the guy says, dude, I, I, I'm paying you for that protection. Are you with me? Are you? It's like when you buy a new phone and you pay the extra money for the accident protection, right? And then an accident happens and you go to the company and say an accident happened. It's like, well, we don't cover accidents. And you're like, I literally paid you to cover the accident. Like, yes, you are covering the act. Like, you are going to make it right, right? You paid someone to watch your animal, i.e. that is your insurance. That's the, that's the nature of the agreement. So even if an accident happens, yeah, you gotta, that's, that's why you got paid. So that you will, will be liable if an accident happens. So those are the easy cases. The, real, the, the tricky one comes in when you think about the nature of liability of a renter. Now, don't, I, it's easy to think about rental cars and agreements and, you know, if you have a contract, then there's no question because you just go by the contract. We're talking about an absence of a contract. What is the default level of liability? So a simple, simple case. Let's say, remember, not a rental car agency, it's your neighbor. So you have a, you have a neighbor whose name is Schmerl. Schmerl has a really nice car. Schmerl drives a... Um, Schmerl drives a, I don't know, a Maserati. Well, I don't know, why would I go exotic? All right, whatever, Schmerl has a car. Forget a, forget a fancy car. Schmerl has a vehicle, any car. You don't have a vehicle. You needed a vehicle for the week. You had family in, you needed a vehicle, whatever. You tell, sorry, Schmerl has two cars. So you tell Schmerl, Schmerl, my neighbor, my good old buddy, I know you have two cars. I don't have any cars. I need a car for a week. Can I give you a hundred bucks to have your car to use it for the week? And Schmerl says, sure. Here are the keys. I'll take a hundred dollars. It's yours. And then an accident happens, God forbid. No, who's liable? Do you tell Schmerl, Schmerl, here's your car. And you, you're pushing it, right? You're, you're, you're pushing it back to him. Schmerl, here's your car. Schmerl says, I gave you a functioning car. What happened? It was an accident. Are you off the hook? Or does Schmerl say to you, uh, my buddy, my pal, you owe me a functioning car. I gave you a functioning car. Or can you say, I paid you. And because I paid you, I'm now off the hook from liability. In other words, don't think about rental cars and insurance in modern times because all of that is contracted. And if there's an agreement, then you go by the written agreement. This is an absence of an agreement. What would the default halacha Jewish law say about a renter? So we know an unpaid guardian, right? If you're doing a favor and an accident happens, no liability. If you're paid, yeah, you're liable. Obviously, you got paid to do a job and you didn't do it or, or something happened. That's, that's the whole point of being paid. But what happens if it's different? What happens if you're the renter? So you have someone else's car, but you paid for it. So on the one hand, you can say... Look, 
Why should I be liable? I mean, I gave, I gave a, to- a token amount of money, but I didn't uh, accept full liability. Or do, do we say, no, you took liability, right? You, you took 100% liability, and you got to get back a functioning car. Um, you got to give back a functioning car. This is the nature of a major Talmudic debate. Take a look. As I share, I, do, I know I'm doing a lot of talking, but honestly, there's a lot of, um, of, of material here to speak, to, to speak about. Take a look at the dispute. The same two rabbis, text number five, I'm going to read this. The Torah did not specify what the status of the renter is, whether he is judged like an unpaid custodian, which means unpaid custodian means no liability for an accident, or like a paid custodian, which means, yes, liability for the accident. Now, simply, Guy rented the car from the neighbor. God forbid an accident. Is he liable or not? Unpaid custodian, no liability. Paid custodian, yes, liability. So the sages of Israel differed. In other words, they disputed this. How does a hire pay in the case of an accident, right? What, what's the deal? Rabbi Meir says, the same Rabbi Meir that we had before, he says, it's like an unpaid custodian, no liability. Rabbi Yehuda says, like a paid custodian, yes, liability. So now the question is, what's at the core of the dispute? What's at the core of the dispute? And the Rebbe says, once again, it comes down to now versus later. It's the same question. Rabbi Meir, the first opinion, he is the nowest. If you recall before, Rabbi Meir is always the one who looks at now, very short term. Rabbi Meir said, look, here's what happens. The guy, Shmerel, the neighbor who's renting the car. Yeah, Shmerel, the owner of the car. Shmerel took money. Shmerel got paid. Shmerel is happy. Is Shmerel thinking, I want my car back? No, he's thinking, I got money. I got a hundred bucks. He's thinking short term. So therefore, he never intentionally placed the liability of the accident liability on his neighbor, the renter, because short term, he was in it for the money. So he got his money, you got your money, then there's no liability anymore because you already got paid. You want to get paid twice? You want to get paid and then get a, get a brand new car back? That's already double dipping. That's Rabbi Meir's opinion. And Rabbi Yehuda said, no, the moment he rented it, he was thinking about getting his car back. Long-term thinking, right? When he rented the car, yes, short-term he took the money. But long-term, it's I'm taking not the full amount of of a car because I need my car back in working condition. This is the dispute. Again, I I have to cut it. I have to be Makatsa. I have to kind of summarize it because we have all these cases to get through. And, of course, a major, major punchline. Let me share my screen with you one more time and look at how the Rebbe explains this dispute with the same core values. Rabbi Meir, the first opinion, values the present over the future. And at present, the owner of the car, in this case, in my example, is getting money and unpredictable mishaps are distant worries of the future. He's not thinking about an accident and liability. He's just enjoying his newfound $100 bill. As such, we assume that the type of custody the owner was relying upon from the, less, from the lessee when he took the money was that of the unpaid custodian. He wasn't holding him accountable for long term, for the future, for, for what happens next. Rabbi Yehuda, however, the second opinion values the future over the present. As such, 
So long as the owner is not confident that the object will be fully guarded from a future mishap, he would not rent out his item even for the money he's receiving right now. And as Rabbi Yudha says, what, you think the guy would ever have rented out his car for 100 bucks if he knew that there's a chance that he might not get it back in working condition and the guy's going to be off the hook? He never would have done that. He only intended to rent it with that understanding of accountability and liability, and therefore, the guy is liable. That's the second opinion. Inasmuch as the lessee is not doing a favor to the owner, rather he's paying money to use the item, we assume that the owner is relying on the lessee to keep the item safe with an added level of care akin to the paid custodian. Again, I'm not, I, I can't, we just don't have enough time to get into every line of this text, and, 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 and I, I'm a little bit oversimplifying this, but as such, here's the point. Rabbi Mayer says that we look at the short term, or we look at the immediate, and the immediate is... The owner of the car is getting $100, and he says, good, I'm getting $100. And in, in essence, because he's satisfied with that, the liability of a possible accident is taken away. Whereas, according to the other opinion, he would have never um, rented it now without thinking about the possibility of an accident in the future, and thus, that was his intention to hold that guy accountable. I'm sure there are questions that you have on this, but without getting into pages of Talmudic discourse and, 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 and these deeper explanations, we, we can't cover it in detail, but that's the core of it. One, um, I want to do one final piece and then the big finish. All right, we got to do this. Okay, you ready? I'm going to jump in. We're going to jump right into the next one. Okay, next dispute between the two same, same two rabbis. Oh, oh, this is talking about, sorry, this is talking about a situation where people are eating a meal together. And the, the law is that if three people eat a meal together, then you recite the grace after meals as a, as a, in collaboration with each other. It's called, um, we call it a mezuman. There's now three, so it's a bit of a, a, bit of a group. Usually 10 is a quorum, is a minion, but when it comes to food, we lower the bar. Even three is considered to be enough of a group where there becomes a leader, and the leader says, uh, "Friends, gentlemen, let's um, let's 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 uh, let's let's bless God together." And the other ones respond. There's a bit of a of a of a of a call and response as an intro, and then the blessing after a meal is recited together by those three. The question is, how much food does each party have to eat to be considered? One of the three. Are you with me? Let's say two people had a full meal and the other one just had a one bite. Is that three or is that two? You understand my question? Jews and food, always good questions, right? To be considered a mazuman, three people that ate together, what's the minimum quantity of food that one has to eat to be part of the, commun the communal eating experience? Wouldn't you know it? This too is the subject of dispute. Here we jump into text number seven. The author writes in the Code of Jewish Law. No, we're going to skip that. Text number eight. How much must one eat to be considered part of the zimun, part of this group of three? Rabbi Meir said, a kazayit, the size of an olive. Rabbi Yehuda said, nope, you have to eat more. A kabetz, the size of an egg. Wonderful. An olive, by the way, is about one ounce. And an egg is about two ounces. So Rabbi Meir sets the bar lower. Even if you ate one ounce of food, you're good. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, 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 two ounces. What's the difference? I'm going to tell you one piece of information. 
The Torah says that when do you say a blessing after a meal? When you eat and are satisfied. So yeah, eating, the basic level of eating is an olive. But to be satisfied, that you need two ounces. So Rabbi Yehuda's opinion makes sense. Because he says if you want to be part of the blessing after meal, you have to have, a, have had at least a kabetz, the size of an egg, because that's satisfying. An olive is too small to be satisfying, even though it's eating. Like on Yom Kippur, if you eat an olive size, you've eaten, even though you're not satisfied. So there's two levels. There's eating, and then there's being satisfied. But why would Rabbi Meir says that, say that kazai, the olive size, is already enough to, 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 to be part of the blessing after meal? Take a look at how the Rebbe explains this. Again, the same, the same piece, the same hinges on the same idea. Rabbi Meir once again values the present. Accordingly, the moment a certain sense of eating has been achieved, the person is already considered part of the zimun. Inasmuch as the usual legal amount for eating is a kazayit, oh, sorry, since, since the usual amount is, is that smaller size, as soon as that benchmark of eating is passed, the obligation of zimun applies. In other words, even though he hasn't yet been satisfied because he only ate the first the first ounce, he hasn't eaten the second ounce, but since right now he's already started eating, we're good to go. The second opinion by conscious Rabbi Yehuda takes the future into consideration. As such, the immediate sense of eating is not the linchpin. Rather, it's the result of eating, namely that a person should be full. That is what brings about the obligation to say grace. Accordingly, we must hit the mark of eating to be full, which is two ounces, the amount of kibetzah, like an egg. The point is, again, it hinges on the same dispute. Do you look at the process or the, um, the outcome? Do you look at the now or the future? Is it about eating or is it about the outcome of eating, which is to be satisfied? So Rabbi Meir says, now you ate, you started eating, you're, you're already ready to be part of the group. The other rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda, says, no, 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 you go by the outcome. Are you full yet? Are you satisfied yet? Now, two ounces is still only two ounces. Nonetheless, it's the basic amount that one could theoretically be satisfied. So he says two ounces, that's when the outcome has been achieved, and therefore, you can go on. I want to conclude with one final piece, which is the big piece. And this is now with two different rabbis. I know we've been doing Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, but it's going to be the same concept with two other rabbis. And I need to tell you the context. The context is when a person makes a mistake and now needs to make amends, which we call in Hebrew, teshuva. Doing teshuva, which is repentance or essentially making amends and asking for forgiveness, whether it's between us and God or between us and a fellow. In, in Judaism, there's a very important law when it comes to teshuva, teshuva, and that is that you have to verbalize what you did. You have to say what you did wrong. You have to verbally confess, whether it's to the other or to God. You have to articulate it with your mouth, not just say, um, not, not just think in your head, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again, but to actually say the words, I'm sorry, etc. Because why? Because if it's still in our heads we might justify it and, 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 and make it not seem so bad. But when we say it, then we can't ignore it anymore. So there's a mitzvah to say it. The question is, how detailed do you have to say it? How, do, you, do you have to say, I'm sorry for you know, the basics, or do you have to get into the details of what you did? This, too, is the subject of dispute. Text number 12. All right, we're almost done. Give me, all right, we're not so bad in time. Give me another two minutes and we're going to wrap this up, hopefully in a beautiful way. Um, 
The Talmud says, text 11, sorry, text 11, text 11. Um, during confession, this is the first opinion. During confession, one must detail the sin. As it is stated, and Moses returned to God and said in this week's Torah portion, please, these people have sinned a great sin and made themselves a God of gold. So Moses, when he asked for forgiveness on behalf of the Jewish people, he states the sin. They made a golden calf. So when that's a message. When we sin and we, conf and, and we ask for forgiveness, you have to articulate the details of the sin. It was a God. It was of gold. You got to articulate it. So that's the statement of Rabbi Huda ben Bava. Rabbi Akiva says, no. The verse states, fortunate is one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are hidden. And that teaches us that one not... Need, one need not detail his sins. It says whose sin is hidden, we can keep it hidden and still be forgiven. Essentially, here's the dispute. One, one opinion says you have to detail the sin, and the other opinion says you don't need to detail the sin. And the question is, what is at the core of the debate? It comes down to the following. Once again, now versus later. The short term versus the long term. So the first opinion says as follows. The first opinion says that you have to detail the sin. Why do you need to detail the sin? Because that's what really gets you to feel it. Because if you don't detail the sin, then you're not going to feel the pain. And if you don't feel the pain, then you're not really going to mean it. And you're not really going to ask for forgiveness. And you're not really going to ask for atonement. So you have to detail it. So that you feel it. And Rabbi Akiva says, he takes a deeper look. He says, when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to atonement, you don't need to detail it to ask for forgiveness because that's a very short-term view. You see, forgiveness could be understood on two levels. Either I'm feeling guilty or I'm feeling ashamed or I'm feeling you know, uh, a punitive pressure, so I'm, uh, I'm asking for forgiveness. Or forgiveness comes because I want to resume my relationship with you, whether it's another human being or with God, which is why I always find funny public um, apologies. Why apologize to the press when you hurt someone individually? Go to their house, go to their house, and have a conversation, right? You you, a press release, a statement, a video. Are you kidding me? It's so not Jewish. It's so not Jewish. What is that about? That's about, I'm feeling ashamed, I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling punished. So I'm trying to get out of that. So I'm using whatever means I can to, to, to make myself feel better. That's one purpose of, 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 of teshuva, which is frankly not the ultimate. The ultimate purpose of teshuva is to resume a relationship. If you want to resume a relationship, go over to the person and have a conversation. Tell them I'm sorry. You know, how can I make this right? And so Rabbi Akiva says, when it's, sorry, so when it's about our own sense of guilt and shame and getting away and not wanting to get punished, you know, by whoever, when it's about us, so yeah, you got to detail the details because that's what makes you feel better. But when it's about the other, you don't have to get into the gory details. They know exactly what you did. You did it to them. You have to tell them what you did. They know better, what, they know better than you what you did. What do you need to do? Actually say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again. That's what it is. It's not about detailing the sin. So what we see here is, again, a short-term versus long-term. Short-term tshuva, 
is repairing your, is rehabilitating your reputation. That's short term. Long term is rehabilitating the relationship. Are you with me in the difference? Yes? I hope I didn't do too many strings here tied together. So short term tshuva is self-oriented tshuva. That's the myopic view. That's, I want to feel better about myself. I'm feeling, oh no, the media is on me. The press is on me. They're going to force me to, um, to uh, what's the word I'm looking for? To um, not retire or whatever it is, right? So, uh-oh, I have to make a statement. I have to, I have to um, force me to quit, whatever it is. I have to press release and detail all my sins and hopefully I'll get away with it. Or hopefully that will get me... Huh? Resign. Resign. Exactly. Resign. And hopefully that will that will allow me to you know to to to, to get back into people's good and, and help me rehabilitate my reputation. That's about me. That's a short term. And if that's the case, then you have to detail it because otherwise it's too it's too easy. Even then, it's still too easy. But it's but it's even easier if you don't detail it. At least detail it. Rabbi Kiva says that's not the purpose of tshuva. The purpose of tshuva is to connect, to reconnect. It's not about you. It's about the relationship. It's about God or the other person. So you don't need to, you know, publicly get into all of the, all of the dirt. It's about sincerely saying, I'm sorry, and sincerely fixing the problem. Rabbi Kiva takes a longer view, what we would call a sustainable path of tshuva as opposed to a short-term Band-Aid to make oneself feel better. So if it's a Band-Aid... Part of, that, part of that catharsis is to bear your soul, to, to, to reveal all the, all the gory details. But that makes you feel better. That doesn't make the victim feel better. I've been, and without getting into details of, of, of modern stuff, there have been people recently that have been apologizing in the press to people that they've hurt. And I just wonder, I'm, I, I have a few, if you think you know who I'm talking about, it could be another person also. So I'm not going to necessarily say who I'm talking about because there's a few people. But the point is, I have a simple question. Did they actually speak to the person that they hurt? I, 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 I honestly wonder. Because if, it, if not, then it's only to make oneself feel better. And that's really not shuva. Rabbi Kiva says that's not shuva. Shuva is not, oh, look at me, I'm so righteous, I'm, I'm, I'm listing all my sins. That's shuva. That's making oneself feel better. That's self, uh, what do they call it? Self, um, I don't know what the word is. That's, that's making, that's wallowing in one's own stuff so that one feels better. Real tshuva, long-term tshuva is fixing the relationship. You don't need to get into all the gory Self-indulging. Self-indulging, exactly. What's real tshuva? Picking up the phone, meeting the person, and having a conversation. Do you, you need to tell them every single thing and all the details they just need to know that you're real and you're sincere and you really sincerely regret it and that's what fixes the relationship my friends in life some of us are more short-term immediate live in the moment some of us are more long-term planners let's think about how this will affect you know a day a week a month a year from now 10 years from now some of us are planners some of us are Living in the momenters. What we saw tonight is that in Jewish law, there are major disputes, life questions even, that hinge on these two perspectives. Is one right? Is one wrong? Rarely it's so simple. Both have value. But what we did see here at the end is when it comes to relationships, when it comes to our mistakes, the goal ought to be not to make ourselves feel better, 
not to rehabilitate our name, not to keep our positions of power, fame, and money, and celebrity, but rather to make things right. May we always strive to make things right and never forget what the real end game is. At the end of the day, we're all meant to get along with each other and to live in a good space with each other. May our relationships be healthy and may we do the work that it takes to get back in good graces with our friends, neighbors, and family. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope the ideas tonight resonated with you. I hope you enjoyed a bit of a different style. Talmudic analysis, lots of cases, Lashita Saihus, and I hope, uh, I hope the final message was inspiring as well. Thank you, and uh, I'll stay on for questions. Pleasure, pleasure.